I'm Afshin Ratansi, and welcome back to Going Underground. NATO nations are in crisis. That is clear. An era of 20th century globalism guided by powerful corporations and institutions like NATO, the IMF, the WTO, and blocs like the EU has accompanied one catastrophe after another. And so today we see the threat of Armageddon from climate change, disease, and perhaps a war in Europe to really end all wars. This, while a minuscule global elite gets richer and richer. But a new book argues that crises can lead to salvation via so-called public-private partnerships. Ian Bremer, president of Eurasia Group's The Power of Crisis, has three threats, and our response will change the world, joins me now from New York City. Thank you so much, Ian, for uh, coming on. I better ask, before we even get into the book, what the reaction is, because the world is uh, uh, arguably in a more imminent crisis uh, than when you were perhaps writing the book. Uh, and uh, given that you're saying crisis can herald uh, salvation, uh, Who's been reading this? Oh, look, it's done quite well. And I, I wonder, you know, I consider myself an upbeat person, but most of my books have been a little depressing uh, because the world has been geopolitically, at least, heading in a much more challenging direction. This is a more hopeful book. And I think in part, um, the strong reaction has been in part because policymakers are looking for that, especially as they're grappling with difficult crises. We've seen that from the UN Secretary General. We saw that just the other day. I saw the president of the World Bank said this was his favorite book from 2022. That was, that was that's certainly nice and startling to see. Um, so pretty much across the political aisle, it's felt pretty good so far. And of course, uh, presumably you'll then be persuading them of some of the action that needs to be taken, which you do uh, talk about in, in the book. One, uh, one paragraph I think that did uh, shock me a little was when you said the US remains the only nation that can protect or project political, economic, cultural, and military power into every region of the world. Do you think that's still true in the light of uh, what's been happening since the publication of the book and what is uh, seen in the Global South as a realignment and less so, arguably, in uh, media in NATO nations? Well, no, I think it's more true uh, today. It's more true uh, with the Russian war and the Europeans uh, betting more on NATO because they understand they can't protect themselves. It's more true in the aftermath of a failed zero COVID policy in China uh, and the likelihood that hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Chinese are going to die as they let COVID rip there. Um, but that doesn't mean that America's power translates into other countries wanting to follow the United States, doesn't translate into alignment, and it doesn't translate into willingness on the part of the United States to play that leadership role. So those are, I mean, the, the fact that the Americans remain um, the one global superpower in terms of the role of the U.S. dollar, the role of the American military, the tech companies, and all the rest, that, that doesn't get you resolution of the world's crises, not at all. And I should just add, though, that China would deny that uh, so many people are going to die. In fact, they would probably draw attention to the fact only 5,000 people, I think, died uh, from COVID. And uh, what is it, a million dead in where you're speaking to me? And I suppose I should remind our audience uh, uh, that the crisis uh, essentially three uh, strands in the book, uh, the climate crisis, the pandemic crisis, and, and war. Um, Xi Jinping has said Russia and China are the top responsible global powers. That's what he said last February. Uh, yeah. what, do you, what do you make of the alliance between Russia and China and BRICS, 
the Samarkand uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting, and the fact that most of the world is not supporting sanctions on Russia. Well, you're right, first of all, that the developing world is not supporting sanctions on Russia, and that's because there's a lot of hypocrisy. Uh, the Americans and the Europeans are uh, doing an enormous amount to defend the Ukrainians, to punish the Russians, but how much would they care if this was a country outside of Europe, if it was in sub-Saharan Africa, if it was in South Asia? And certainly if you're India, if you're a member of the BRICS, if you're in the global south, you feel like the Americans, the Europeans are very hypocritical um, in which human rights abuses, in which abuses of self-determination sovereignty they choose uh, to make a top priority. If the same invasion had happened in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, immediately the West would likely call for a ceasefire. They wouldn't be saying that the Ukrainians get to make the decision of when they should negotiate and get as much support as possible. But of course, when it comes to China, the Chinese do not have an alliance with Russia. They have a strategic partnership. Back in February, February 4th, of course, several weeks before the war started, the Chinese did say publicly, Xi Jinping did on the global stage, that his relationship with Russia was a global friendship without limits. He's not repeated that uh, since the war has started, and he wouldn't. Uh, and, and the idea that they're best friends on a global stage, well, certainly the Chinese have backed away from that. And what that shows you is that Putin has made an enormous misjudgment. It is precisely that crisis that has the power of strengthening NATO, of aligning the G7, of building American military leadership with its allies all over the world, um, and has made, effectively made Russia and made Putin into a pariah um, on the international stage. That's why Putin didn't even show up at the G20 summit in Bali. Uh, it's why he decided to cancel um, his annual press conference that goes on for hours and hours. We don't, we don't know the reasons for that. And in June only, Xi Jinping reiterated his support for mutual support for Russia. And where do you think, uh, who's, who's buying the Russian energy resources at discounted prices, presumably to fund the war? I'm not sure. Uh, not just China, India as well. A friend of the United States in the Quad is buying even more of Russian oil right now than the Chinese are. There's no question when it comes to their economic well-being, the developing countries are going to do what they think is in their own interest, much as the Americans have been seen to do that over the past decades. But do you think, I mean, I, I suppose I should ask why, for a start, uh, as you're intimating, uh, they want uh, to attack Russia through through Ukraine in this way. Uh, they would have called, as you say, a ceasefire if it was in some African country, why they want to do this. And also whether it is notable that in the think tanks of Washington amongst policy uh, wonks that uh, they want to split Russia and China up here. But again and again, there is evidence to show that, that, uh, that they are uh, binding together and increasing their alliances. I know you don't want to call it an alliance, but of course, uh, uh, and a, uh, no forbidden areas of cooperation, another synonym would arguably be alliance. They seem to be cementing even closer ties with the Middle East, where I'm speaking to you from, let alone in Africa, and of course, uh, in Latin America and Southeast Asia. I, I, I don't call an alliance because the Chinese are very clear that they don't want it to be called an alliance, that they, they don't want to be called upon to defend the Russians from Ukrainian attack, from NATO attack. You're right that in Washington, of course, there's a strong desire um, to try to divide Russia from China. And the Chinese have told, Xi Jinping has told Biden, he's told the European leaders as well, that that's not going to happen, that's not going to work. 
because the Chinese feel like they've been contained to a degree by the United States and their allies in Asia in the same way that Russia has felt contained by the Americans and the Europeans in their backyard in Eurasia and in Europe. So the worldviews are actually aligned from a strategic perspective. The problem is that Putin has made this really horrible mistake. And you know, when you talk about, well, who's so interested um, in defending the Ukrainians or trying to attack the Russians? So the fact is that the Russians invaded Ukraine back in 2014 with their little green men. And for eight years, they largely got away with it. European heads of state were happy to travel to Moscow and celebrate the Russian World Cup uh, back when the Russians were occupying Ukraine. The sanctions were limited. There were lots of there were lots of signals that were being delivered to Putin directly from the West that NATO was getting weaker, more divided, that Ukraine wasn't a priority, and that they could kind of do what they want. And then when when Biden pulled out of Afghanistan. And that was such a disaster for all sides after 20 years of war. You know, Putin was clearly thinking, well, the Americans don't want any part of this. So so if we attack Ukraine, no one's going to care. No was it that or since 2014, huge domestic pressure in Russia to do something about the killing of thousands of people in Donbass by NATO armed Ukrainian troops? And what do you make of Angela Merkel, the former German chancellor, saying that the Minsk Accords, ratified in UN Security Council Resolution 2202, were merely an attempt to give Ukraine time and that always the idea was to uh, force a war with Russia through Ukraine, seemed to be the implication of what Angela Merkel was saying. It was all a lie, the Minsk Accords, the UN Resolution. The, the, the thousands, of course, the 13,000 uh, people that have died um, in the Donbass um, are not uh, Russians. They are Russians and Ukrainians, and numerous crimes were being committed on the ground um, as that war was going on. That's Ukrainian territory, has been Ukrainian territory since 1991. It was voted um, on, of course, it was sovereign. Indeed, the Russians signed the Budapest Memorandum with the Americans in the UK that uh, promised to defend Ukrainian territorial integrity. The Russians then chose to uni unilaterally abrogate that. Now, you are absolutely correct that there were a lot of signals that were being provided to the Russians over the months in the lead up to the war that no one would do very much if the Russians invaded. That was an enormous misjudgment on the part of Putin. And now he is stuck with a military that's functioning very badly, a war that's enormously costly and unpopular, a NATO that has expanded, a Ukraine that has been invited to join the European Union, um, and of course, a Russia that has been completely decoupled from the advanced industrial economies of the world. The danger here is that there's no way back for Putin. There's no way to bring the Russians back to business as usual. That's just inconceivable in this environment. So it does make life much more dangerous indeed, especially for the Europeans who are going to have to pay the additional defense expenditure. They're going to have to pay for the higher costs of energy and other inputs, the deindustrialization. And of course, they're going to have to deal with Russia that feels humiliated and will be engaged in asymmetric proxy wars against NATO frontline states. Or another view could be using your book and the idea of crisis catalyzing new innovative uh, solutions, that Europe is a dying continent now, and that in fact most of the world does not see Putin's invasion in quite that light and actually sees it as a catalyst for a new world order, one in which we see nations across the global south scrambling to join BRICS, BRICS banks, I know you mentioned it in the book, BRICS banks, the uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, or 
variously described as a new type of NATO, although they don't like to say it themselves. In fact, what Putin has done is to speed up history and show that Europe, especially uh, given its now total reliance uh, on uh, LNG fracked gas from the United States, it, and opening of coal-fired stations in uh, stark contrast to COP26 environmental uh, uh, obligations, Europe is finished because of what Putin has done. And the United States, if anything, will seek to uh, make alliances, depending on what happens in Washington, with these new Global South entities. Um, look, I'm very glad that you raised the point of winners and losers from the war, because, of course, it is very significant. Um, the biggest losers on the back of the Russian invasion of Ukraine is, of course, the developing world, because the Europeans have the money to buy the energy from other places, to buy the food, to buy the fertilizer. Who are the countries that are hit hardest by these supply chain disruptions? Uh, again, Russia and Ukraine are some of the largest food producers and exporters, fertilizer producers and exporters in the world. Of course, it's not the Europeans, it's the poor countries that always take it in the teeth on the back of these crises. So after the pandemic, with interest rates going up, and now the Russia-Ukraine war, meaning that you're gonna have so much more global starvation in the poorest countries of the world because the Russians invaded Ukraine. And the Americans and the Europeans should do a lot more to provide aid to these countries. And yet what we've seen is that they're searching in their pockets and they're finding mostly lint. They're not doing enough for these countries. And the developing world is very angry about it. So there is gonna be a growing gap between the West and the South as a consequence of that, just as you saw on the aftermath of the COP27 climate summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, just as you saw when the Indians begged the Americans for even one plane load of vaccines, their friends, the Americans, when the Americans already had uh, booster shots and the Americans said, no, sorry, we're not gonna provide that. So very understandable disappointment on the part of the South but to say that the Europeans are the big losers, no, it's the poorer countries in the world that are getting the short end of the stick. That's happening from climate, it's happening from the financial crises, and of course it's happening from the Russia-Ukraine war. That is the true tragedy of what this war has meant for the world. Ian Bremer, I'll stop you there. More from the president of Eurasia Group and author of The Power of Crisis, How Three Threats and Our Response Will Change the World after this break. Welcome back to Going Underground. I'm still here with Ian Bremer, the president of Eurasia Group and author of The Power of Crisis. You're claiming that uh, the Ukraine war is catalyzing starvation in the developing world. Some might argue that actually it is the International Monetary Fund. Many of the organizations that you see as part of the salvation in your book out of this, these crises, whether it be the WTO, the World Bank, you mentioned that uh, the head of the World Bank presently, I know their policies have changed over decades, it is they that have starved the Global South. I'm sure you've read uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman explaining how they do it. The 40 coups in uh, 50 uh, years by the United States. In fact, in countries that you mentioned, you write about climate problems. Uh, Syria, wasn't it the United Kingdom and the United States funding Al-Qaeda and ISIS there? El Salvador, wasn't it the United States funding death squads? Guatemala, wasn't it the legacy of the Elias coup in 1993 in Honduras, the CIA coup 2009 against Zelaya? Why do you not mention the fact that so much of this is to do with U.S. policy, not simply to do with climate change or to do with, uh, well, you're saying the starvation is suddenly going to be appearing 
or exacerbated in the global south. What I'm suggesting, of course, of course, look, we know the United States has been responsible um, for coups historically. I'm trying to keep them recent. Well, no, no, some of the ones you mentioned weren't very recent, frankly, but but nonetheless. um, 1993 for Guatemala, 2009 for Honduras, Venezuela. You mentioned Venezuela in the book. They were but trying want, to overthrow to Maduro a few I'm, I'm, I'm very happy. years ago. I, I'm not trying. I'm not trying. I mean, I don't find confessions of an economic hitman to be very compelling, but I do find the history of American and European colonialism and neocolonialism to be very compelling, and not not a history that anyone should be proud of, um, and and not one that should be obscured. But we need to understand that over the last 50 years there has been the creation of a global middle class that emerging markets around the world have economically outperformed, that that you've created more educated elites in these countries, more urbanization, life expectancy has increased dramatically, well beyond anything they've ever seen in history. That's largely been successful. But if you look at the human development index from the United Nations in the last three years, they've actually turned around that now you're not seeing a strengthening of a global middle class. You're seeing a weakening of the global middle class. You're seeing more poverty. You're seeing more refugees. Hang Why on, is on, that? I'm sorry, Ian. Most yes. of those figures sure. are hugely distorted by the fact the Chinese Communist Party brought 800 million out of poverty. Uh, and that's why, overall, you see that average increasing, surely. I mean, it's, it's I know India has increased its at, middle uh, class. It's true, not just but, that. I mean, of course, the Chinese are, are this, have been the single largest beneficiary of globalization because of the size of their economy and now 1.4 billion people. But if you look at our world and data, the work done by Max Roser uh, and uh, at, at Oxford, if you look at factfulness by Hans Rosling, and you look at the trajectories of all of those developing countries over the last 50 years, you look at them on a scatter plot. It's not just a China story. China's been the most extraordinary piece of it, uh, no question. But it's been all over the developing world. No offense, a- no offense to those scholars, but clearly they won't be counting the what forty thousand some people estimate killed by U.S. sanctions on Venezuela. Let alone uh, what's been well, happening. They're looking at the numbers across the world. Of course, they're looking at now eight billion people on aggregate. I mean, I, I can find horrible anecdotes for you, but if you're talking about development in the world, you're, of course, talking about a global middle class. You're talking about humanity as a whole. Now, of course, climate change got vastly worse over the course of that, so there's short-termism um, in in the benefits of economic development has also meant encroachment uh, and a lack of biodiversity. It's meant more pandemics because human beings are coming into greater contact with wildlife. It's now 1.2 degrees centigrade of warming that's going to head for 2.5. That's also going to be on the back of the poorest, not on the back of the wealthy. So there are big trade-offs that come from short-termism of industrialization and exploitation of the economy. That's true. But if you just want to look at human development in the world over the last 50 years, it's not principally a story of imperialism and war. It's principally a story of fewer wars and of much greater education, of much greater innovation, and of course, of much greater explosion of wealth of the average person on the planet. Some of those countries would say that uh, it was in spite of that, the increase in uh, the increase in the middle class, and of course, in terms of innovation, some people are saying basic innovation uh, is on the decline over the past 50 years. Notably, Professor Danny Dawling at uh, Oxford University. Uh, I suppose one question here is that you do seem to privilege in the book the narratives that have been uh, propagated by media in NATO nations, on and on. You seem to be buying into a sort of quasi-Nazi-like Uyghur massacre 
narrative in Xinjiang. Do you really believe that the China, China is massacring or putting into concentration camp Muslims in China? Uh, only about a million. Um, in, and you in, believe uh, that because we've we've invested in re-education camp. Yeah, we've seen we've seen of course we've seen the documents that have been leaked uh, from the Chinese Communist Party. We've seen very significant work done um, by. Uh, the BBC and The Guardian and The New York Times and many others. Of course, the Chinese don't have a free press, and so you're not going to get that level of political scrutiny internally. And Just on, on the Uyghur point, on the Uyghur point, yes. it's not so much that uh, the East Turkestan movement, it's the fact that they've been exposed as lying about evidence that there were a million people, and in fact, the UN recognizes that, let alone, obviously, the Chinese are saying, uh, Foreign Minister Wang Yi, there has never been so-called genocide, forced labor, or religious I, I oppression. I thought that the report um, that was delivered by Michelle Bachelet on the last day of her being the United Nations uh, Human Rights uh, Envoy Commissioner. Uh, and of course, uh, that was done specifically because everyone understood how upset the Chinese would be about the release. But it was a courageous thing for the United Nations to do. I, I, I understand I the Michelle Bachelet uh, intervention, yeah. and uh, arguably that's been overwritten by further UN uh, remarks by spokespeople. But uh, The Guardian, the BBC, these outlets, the ones famously, of course, that uh, said that uh, there was WMD in uh, Iraq. What is the role of media I and propaganda? I think they were questioning uh, the WMD in Iraq. In, in fact, the um, Guardian Group Observer the supported the war. The one BBC. Of the interesting, Ian, one of the interesting. Ian, I worked for the BBC of, Today program. One of the interesting. Sorry. I understand. Look, Ian, I appreciate I, that you like the book, really. and I, I, I do. I'm really. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, but look, I mean, I'm not going to stand here and, and justify uh, an American war into Iraq over fake intelligence. And indeed, I heard from many times uh, from people um, that have been, you know, from the Kremlin, right, that you, you, one of the justifications for the Ukraine war is that, the well, if the Americans are going to lie about WMD in Iraq, a country that doesn't even matter to them, then who cares if we lie about genocide being committed against uh, what we're going to call a Nazi regime in Ukraine. I think that when Putin says there's no such thing as truth, there's no such thing as truth. It's what we make of it. I mean, it's, that is, you know, this philosophical realpolitik that, that is Putin is trying to use to justify that his behaviors are no worse and have no more right to be judged by the international community than those of the Americans. I fundamentally reject that. But I understand that many acts in American history have gone a significant way to allow authoritarian dictators with no interest in human rights to use those arguments for their own purposes. It's certainly true. No such thing as true. That was Donald Rumsfeld, I thought. Or was it Vladimir Putin? Uh, on, on climate... No, on... no, that's not exactly what Donald... <laughs> no, if you have exactly. the quote, I'd love to hear it, but Very that's similar. not what he said. No, no, obviously, no, unknown no, truths. No, go for it. I'm happy to hear the quote. That would be useful. No, no, I'm joking about the fact, of course, Donald Rumsfeld famously uh, uh, equivocated uh, over answering questions about uh, the Iraq war. The, uh, I, 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 I kind of feel... liked his quote on the things that you don't know you don't know. I mean, that's, that is close to philosophical. It's kind of existential. There is no, nobody truly knows what's going on, but it's not quite what Putin said. On the, I haven't actually heard that Putin quote. On the climate change crisis, which you clearly in the book say is the uh, existential threat, why is it no one ever talks about the fact that the U.S. military is the largest emitter of fossil fuel uh, f fossil fuel uh, emissions. Why, why does no one talk about the largest military on Earth and its emissions? Uh, obviously, uh, look, I think people talk about the United States as a country. This goes back 
um, to what I described um, in looking at globalization and how different economies and middle classes have done. The United States for a long period of time, including the military, has been the largest emitter of carbon on the planet and, and, and owns a lion's share of the responsibility for fixing the issue right now. Now, the Chinese government, including their military today, emits more the chinese economy emits more than 2x yeah, no no i'm i'm trying to separate out the us military i'm trying to separate the well, us military because it's, it's a country on its own why does no one ever talk about uh, the us military's emissions because it's integrated with the us economy uh, i mean it's fundamentally part of of the united states uh, gdp I mean, it's not like people are spending an enormous amount of time talking about the U.S. tech sector either. I mean, you do break these things down and people talk about how much comes from hard infrastructure as opposed to soft transportation infrastructure, again, which includes civil military as part of it. It's both. It is. I mean, I think what, what people tend to do when they look at climate is they're trying to get their arms around something they've been ignoring for a long time. The world understands how bad this problem presently is. They understand that for decades, economic development, including military development, has ignored the long-term consequences for the climate. I mean, my God, I was born in 1969, and in 50 years, over 50% of all of the animals on the planet were gone. I mean, the biodiversity just gone, staggering. It's the worst piece of data I've seen in new my species, entire life. New species as well. It should be said. I'm not being a and climate denier. Extinction. I've just got to finish. I've just got to finish here by asking you. Uh, about uh, public-private uh, solutions to this. Because as we said earlier, the greatest uh, uh, humanity uh, development has been the Communist Party of China's uh, feeding of those 800 million people, bringing them out of poverty, centrally uh, managed, no matter what Deng Xiaoping's uh, reforms were, they were still central management elements in large regions. Why, again and again in your book, do you want private oligarchs, corporations, why do you want them involved? Why not just make them all democratically accountable and have them uh, owned by the state? Like, I know Amtrak isn't doing that well in the United States right now, but the US Post Office, why not do that? Instead of always try and help these oligarchs and big corporations, try and suck oh, them I mean, into it, part, as if they will make it problem. more efficient. A big part of your problem is that the United States and China, which are the number one and number two most powerful governments in the world, are increasingly inward focused in their solutions. They're talking about national solutions, America first and China first, national champions, China's investment in dual circulation and the Chinese supply chain in Chinese domestic consumption, the Americans, whether it's Trump's America first or Biden's US foreign policy for the American middle class, these are not global solutions. And yet every challenge you've talked about over your show has a global challenge, whether it's a pandemic or whether it's a climate crisis. So the UN. Right. And so if you ask me the kind of responses you're going to get that are global, you have to go beyond just the United States and China. Now, by the way, a lot of these solutions aren't public private, but they are bigger. If they're public, they're much bigger than the U.S. and China. So on climate, the EU, the European Union is doing far more to set standards 
and to move towards sustainable renewable energy than the Americans or Chinese are on a global stage. Bef that Ian, before, before, before Ukraine, arguably, but we'll have to ask you on again to talk more about that. Ian Bremer, thank you, and that's it for the show. We'll be back next week with another brand new episode, but until then, you can still keep in touch via all our social media if it's not censored in your country, but you can always head to our channel, Going Underground TV, on rumble.com to watch new and old episodes of Going Underground. See you soon. Thank you.